is allowing the algorithm to do its job. And I think we as media buyers have been skeptical to allow that to happen. That can't happen anymore. We're at the stage now where we actually do need the algorithm to do its job. Case in point, we have a personal injury law client speaking with the media buyer. There is a component to their account that is overseen by a different platform, a Google pay-per-click specialist who's probably one of the best ones I've ever met, but he's old school. And that old school is trying to manipulate everything and not trusting Google in order to allow the algorithm to really work and find their ideal customer. In this particular case, it's car accident victims. And we're not talking about anything here that's brand related, really. It's all conversion campaigns. This is the Customer Acquisition Show, the podcast that helps you turn complete strangers into repeat customers and grow your business. Hello and welcome to the Customer Acquisition Show. I am your host, Tom Meredith, the VP of Marketing here at Tier 11. Today we're joined by recurring guest Landon, one of our growth strategists, and Ralph, founder, CEO, host of Perpetual Traffic. He's made the trek over here to Customer Acquisition Show. Welcome, fellas. Hey, how's it going? Great, great to be here. I love being on someone else's show, by the way, Tom. This is amazing. It's a lot more fun when I'm on your show that you host and me just poke you. Tables have turned today. It's like the tables have turned. It's great. <laughs> so this is a topic that came up in our internal Slack channel where, you know, Ralph, you had gone out to Meta's Performance Marketing Summit and you came away with this takeaway that Meta was pushing pretty hard about the importance of awareness and consideration campaigns throughout the advertising funnel. So maybe we start there, but this is also something that is quite a bit bigger than just Meta. And I know this is something you've been pushing pretty hard on for quite a while, Ralph, really top of funnel content, really bringing awareness and building brand over the long period of time to bring sustainability to people's marketing efforts. So maybe, Ralph, why don't we just start with your takeaways from Meta? Yeah, yeah. I think anything that's presented at a Meta conference, you always have to sort of say, all right, well, these are typically very, very large brands that have used this particular strategy. So how does it apply to maybe the listeners of this show or the watchers of this show for the small to mid-market brands? And I think we've reached this point of inflection in marketing where now is the time where the small and the mid-market brands, basically the ones that are maybe not enterprise level, the ones that aren't the Botoxes and the athletic greens of the world, start looking at this strategy as a legitimate strategy for how they can scale, not just in the dog-eat-dog world of high-intent-based keywords on Google or website conversion campaigns with extraordinarily high and going higher CPMs, but how can you actually get out of that and go into this blue ocean of people who maybe aren't in market for your particular service at that particular zero moment of truth, which is really what you're doing when you're running website conversion campaigns on Meta, or what you're doing when you're running pay-per-click ads, which are search-based, intent-based keywords, maybe not brand keywords for your name. But in our niche, we do a lot of Google, we do a lot of Meta. And on the Meta side, there's a lot of the interruption marketing. And then on Google, there is more intent-based marketing. But now with Performance Max in the last year, that platform is far more way top of funnel. And those are people that might not be in market, might not be looking for your solution, might be unaware that they even have a problem. <laughs> Going back to Eugene Schwartz, which I'm, I'm sure you guys love to sort of quote on this show, which we quote on Perpetual Traffic all the time. 
How do you expand that market from a finite market of people who are looking for your stuff or looking for a solution, but then go back out to talking about their problems? They might be problem aware. And then broader sense, maybe they're unaware that they even have that problem. And in an agency of our size, we bring on customers that say, all right, I want to spend a dollar and I want to get $3 back. The old, oh, 3X ROAS question, Landon, which I know that you get all the time. Everybody sort of has this standard. And that strategy works to a certain degree. And I think it's a good place to start. But as a brand matures, as a company matures, what they really need to do is start thinking higher level and start thinking like the big brands, thinking like the Botoxes of the world, the Allergans of the world, you know, these huge brands that Meta typically presents at these conferences as the standard or an example and bringing it down to what can you do? Maybe the business owner that's sub 10 million in revenue or sub 5 million in revenue or even like a million dollars or maybe you're a startup. How can you borrow some of these strategies? Because that's where I see everything going. I know we've got a Canadian here on the call. So one of my favorite analogies is the Wayne Gretzky analogy. What made him such a great hockey player is he wasn't like going where the puck was. He was going where he thought the puck was going to be. And that's what made him a great player. So totally overused business expression. But that's what we're talking about here. When I go to these conferences, I'm always like, all right, well, how can I apply this to what we're doing? Because we are not an enterprise level agency. We, we're not like a big six agency, which they do this. But Meta in these conferences talk about these sorts of either companies, agencies, and it's a much higher level of thinking. And as a media buyer who is in the weeds every single day, trying to get results either for their business or for if they are serving a customer in an agency or they're a consultant, they're under the pressure of every dollar that they spend, they got to get it back at a certain point in time, plus a ROAS or a rate of return. And the easiest way to do it is to go website conversion, high intent-based keywords, but then you reach this sort of this ceiling. And that ceiling is either costs are too high, you've run out of audience that already is in market, and what do you do next? And the answer is, is you create your own market through branding, which is something that I think inside Tier 11, we really haven't talked about a whole lot. In fact, we've sort of railed against it. We're not a branding agency. We're not going out there and just getting reach and impressions. But that's not the thing. Like The goal is not to just get your name out there. It's like, how do you use that so that you ultimately bring them through this customer journey to create a conversion? That's how these big brands scale. That's why Athletic Greens, you're starting to see TV ads. I see them all the time. Maybe it's because it's programmatic ads because you know we all do through connected TV, through OTV or OTT. And then all of a sudden we see ads in our newsfeed. Not a lot of these are direct response. Some of them are direct response, but a lot of them are just big branding plays. And then what that leads to is awareness and then either consideration for maybe some kind of transitional opt-in, some type of transitional conversion, maybe for a coupon code, maybe for an opt-in, but then ultimately to a conversion to buy. And those purchases are typically made now through a Google search or maybe an ad that they see inside their newsfeed at very smaller spends. Anyone who's listening to the show here today and is struggling with scale, this is a strategy that I think we want to talk about. I'm very interested to hear what Landon says about it, is that is a big brand strategy 
adapted for the small to middle market business and how it works. And we've seen it work inside tier 11 and we're believers of it. And I think the meta conference that I was at just sort of reinforced the fact that this is the future. Within the meta conference, like the main takeaway was that a lot of brands spend way too much money in the conversion part of their campaigns and they need to be putting a lot more or divvying up their spend across the other two of consideration and awareness within meta. And that just led to this broader conversation, which Landon, I'd love to get your kind of take on. I know you have a a pretty strong thesis around full funnel marketing. Where do you want to start with that? I'm very passionate about this because I think it's so misunderstood. There's like the two ends of the spectrum, the extremes of you get like the Coca-Colas where it's nothing but branding. And then you get this like the hardcore direct response marketers where just like Ralph said, we need a 3x ROAS. We need to make money today. We don't got investors. We can't do this, that and the other thing. But we don't need to land in the extreme. We need to take the best of what all of these companies are doing and find that balance in the middle. There's a reason why there's brands that do nothing but branding ads, and they are billion-dollar companies. I started to think of, as I was just kind of coming into the show today, like branding starts to create like a moat for your business. When you have brand, you have intangible things that impact the success of your business. So if you think of like you're buying something on Amazon and there's one product that's got 10 reviews and the next product has 10,000 reviews, which one are you going to buy? You're probably going to buy the one that's got 10,000 reviews compared to the one that's got 10. That's brand. That's building brand equity. If you think of an individual or a company that's got 387 followers on Instagram versus one that's got 3.7 million followers on Instagram, which one are you going to assign more authority and credibility to and pay closer attention to when like all else similar, you haven't been exposed to anything else? These are branding plays. When McDonald's has an ad based on going into ChatGPT and saying who has the best burger and it spits out McDonald's, that's branding. We can start to leverage all of those things into small and medium-sized businesses, but it does require a complete shift in the mentality of we can't look at what we made today in money. We can't look at how much money we made in the last seven days. We need to start looking at how we're leveraging these activities to build a business, not generate money today, because that short-sighted mentality isn't necessarily going to be the best serving for the longevity of the business. Yeah, and I think that's to your point earlier, Ralph, of one of the harder things coming out of these meta presentations is taking how it applies to a Fortune 500 brand and working what are some actionable steps for these smaller businesses. And I think actually of Athletic Greens is a pretty good example of something that is pretty effective. For a long time, their branding play was just associating themselves with different podcasters that aligned with their target audience. They would sponsor podcasts. And when they started, that wasn't very expensive. But over such a long period of time, they just built this brand equity. They associated themselves like Tim Ferriss. I think they're probably like Lex Friedman, David Sinclair, like people who are biohackers are aligned with their ideal client. Now they can go both in lower and higher funnel from there because they have such a strong branding base. They can really reach out to these larger audiences through TV ads. And I remember it was about a year and a half ago, they were going hard in the paint for direct response. Like they were everywhere trying to get you to purchase. Yeah, and it works to a degree, but everyone is going to hit a ceiling at a certain point in time. That ceiling could be in six months for a business. That ceiling could be in six years for another business. But it's like, what do you do once you hit that ceiling? 
And like maybe we should do some things in the meantime to start to bring the height of that ceiling higher and higher so we don't always have to worry about hitting it. And like Ralph said, direct response marketing is focused on converting the 1% to 3% of the audience that's ready to make a buying decision right now. But what people forget about is that's ignoring 97 to 99% of the market. And we can use the word branding, but it is full funnel marketing. It's awareness, consideration, and conversion. People are at different points along their buying journey. And they're inside that 97 to 99%. And through branding, as we're going to use that term today, we can bring those people along that journey to become that 1% to 3%. So when they're ready to make that buying decision, they're buying from our brand as opposed to somebody else. And it's only going to become more important in the future because there's more platforms. You know, Threads was just released. It's getting more competitive and more competitive. Entrepreneurship is getting more popular. There's only more competition. An agency is going to be selling a very similar service to another agency. How is one way that you can differentiate yourself is through having a bigger brand that's more recognizable. That's one way you can start to create a moat for your business. Yeah. And I think the moat analogy is it's perfect because I, mean, I think smaller businesses tend to not think that way. They're like, I just need sales now in order for cash flow, in order to pay for payroll, which I get that. I understand that. I've been there. I mean, if you really look at the evolution of tier 11 marketing has completely changed in the last year. I mean, it due in large part to Tom and the VP of marketing, but also the marketing department, how we sort of brand ourselves. We are doing this exact strategy. And it's because we're trying to differentiate in the market and build a moat around what we do that's different than everybody else. And I think Athletic Greens did that extremely well. I think they were one of the many examples at this meta conference. Allergan with Botox and their Juvederm product was another one. We can even get into some of these case studies. Tapestry, which is a huge brand, which is Coach Kate Spade, like big brands. They're all doing this. And this is not like they do it, so I shouldn't be doing it because I don't have the money for it. If there's anything that comes away from today's show is just start thinking about it and thinking about a strategy. And this doesn't necessarily mean you need to take all your website conversion campaigns and all your pay-per-click campaigns for the high-value keywords that are super intent-based and just stop them and do this. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's like it needs to become a part of where you're at because you need to start building that moat. If you are competing in those spaces, what you're doing is you're basically commoditizing yourself. And what this allows you to do is create a brand. And Athletic Greens is a great example of it. People now know who they are. And I remember seven years ago when we first took on, we went into this market and a direct competitor of theirs, we were the direct response agency for and worked with them for four or five years. And we never went the branding component. And they're still languishing as a $20, $25 million company, whereas Athletic Greens now is upwards of a billion. And I think what they did, they did this differently. They also did a really good job with influencer content, which also sort of created credibility. Like they figured it out through a multi-marketing mix that I think is to the extreme, but they started as really nothing eight or nine years ago. They were sort of the laughing stock in that space, in the powdered green juice space. Like their stuff tasted like crap. Nobody liked them, but now look at them. 
And branding had a lot to do with it. So now it builds a moat, it builds loyalty. And so they don't have to market quite as hard. Now they just need to, relatively speaking, still spend money, obviously, but stay in front of the consumer, not to the point where it's McDonald's and Coke. All you need to do is be reminded of McDonald's and Coke and every other like car company that's out there. Like we're still here. Yeah, we're going to give you a little bit of what we do differently. And McDonald's is really good with just rotating in their ads and giving different offers and then sort of lifestyle ads. And I think we're all students of marketers on this call here. But the point is, is like, that's a whole other level. But don't think of branding as that. Think of it as like how you can start to build a moat around your business, around your unique selling proposition, what you do differently than everybody else. At a certain level in your marketing, you have to start doing this. And we have this transformation going on with a number of customers right now, some of whom are sort of farther along than others. And then this conference just sort of reiterated to me is like, this is absolutely the way. You know, Tom, I know you're a big Disney Plus fan, so this is the way. Have you guys seen the Ahsoka trailer? It's amazing. I haven't, but tangent. Now I will. Yeah. <laughs> I think that example of the twenty five million versus the one billion dollar brand kind of aligns with something you called out in the thread, Landon, that you noticed within our own clients of hitting this peak of diminishing returns. The more mature a brand is, the more they spend on these conversion campaigns the faster they hit the ceiling. And then it becomes a really hard challenge for media buyers to overcome. Talk a little bit about how you view that and how you maybe coach your clients to be like, hey, we should start putting efforts into these higher funnel activities. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things that I'll dig into. So the first is this concept that gets tossed around a lot in performance marketing, which is creative fatigue. There's a point where it's like, okay, is our creative fatiguing every single week or do we just need to start expanding our audience and getting in front of more people? And I truly think it's a matter of, yeah, maybe we need to, maybe the creative is fatiguing. It's probably a factor. Maybe we do need to kind of come after like a different market segment, but maybe we need to start going after part of that 97 to 99% and bring them into, maybe the dads don't need to change. Maybe we just need to bring more people into that one to 3% to purchase from the ads that we're running right now. Alongside of that, as I try and educate people, there's a quote by a marketer by the name of Dean Jackson, which says 85% of customers will purchase after 90 days. So something I've said to a lot of people is, how would the marketing of your business change if you knew somebody that saw your ad today wouldn't purchase for 90 days or 180 days? How would that change the way you go about your business? And even a personal experience of mine and my wife's business she sold like a $5,000 certification for a number of years. And we started to dig in. And with we saw with time, the length of time somebody was in her world before they made a purchase was increasing. So as competition increases, as there's more options out there, the buying decisions that people are making because of the battle for their attention is increasing. So we started to see people were in her world for about six months before they purchased. So that's somebody opting into her email list and getting her emails and listening to her podcast for six months. So we can just start to see the data we already have is already giving us these signals. Meta telling us to use awareness ads and consideration ads isn't new. They've been pounding on this for years, but it's now people are just starting to kind of understand it. So it's educating people around we need to start going after more people inside of that audience. 
And then just starting to educate people around how customers make buying decisions. So let's say that you're looking to purchase a car. The reason you're looking to purchase a car compared to me or Ralph could be completely different. You've got kids, maybe you need a new vehicle because you have a new baby on the way, you need more size. I might need a new vehicle because I just got into a car accident and now I need to replace a vehicle. Inside of the market, inside of the buying journey, we not only have people at different stages of that journey, they might not even know they need a car yet and they're just getting attracted to a brand based on the aesthetics. Now there's somebody that needs one based on decisions and factors happening in their life. But there's different reasons that people are going to make these buying decisions. So when I approach it, it doesn't necessarily start to come from how should we approach media buying? It's like, what content should we be creating to attract which part of our audience? Because there's endless directions that it can go. I think this is a pretty good segue into Anthony's question here and Ralph, something that you'd have talked a bit about the amount of content. Anthony says, you listen to the most recent PT podcasts about cost per content. Would that be a good way to position it to clients to put some, what of a cost reporting perspective on it for clients? And I think this also goes to why people default to conversions because it's easily measurable. Branding is not necessarily easily measurable. So Ralph, maybe hit on cost per content a little bit. And Landon, I'd be curious your perspective on if this would be a valuable way to present the amount and differentiation you need for clients. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a hard pill for some businesses to swallow because they realize, well, wait a second, I have to spend money now that might not get the payoff six months from now. <laughs> So, and then with attribution being the way that it is right now on all the platforms, it's harder to measure. I don't really even know, like if I start producing videos like these guys say in the customer acquisition show, I'm not going to see anything from that for a while. It's going to depend on what your customer life cycle is. I do think that the new paradigm really is not necessarily CPA, it's cost per content. The reason I'm saying that is as long as you have tools in which to measure it, or at least to get close to measuring it so that you understand which content at the very, very top, top end of the funnel, the ones that are not converting. This show is an example of that. This is very meta without saying meta like Mark Zuckerberg meta. This show is part of this whole concept. If you notice like how we're actually doing this, we are not pitching tier 11. Well, if you want to go buy tier 11 stuff and set an appointment and go to our call to action, and you're going to end up talking to me, by the way, because you know, I'm the new sales guy this week. Great. But that's not the purpose of this show. The purpose of this show is to create content to create your audience. Your content then creates the audience at a very, very top level. People will value that content or Maybe it speaks to a pain point or to a desire and they say, oh, I identify with that person. But this might be the first touch point that they get into a show called the Customer Acquisition Show, which isn't even branded to our brand. This is almost the way that it needs to be done. Athletic Greens didn't do it through like the Athletic Greens page. They did it through Joe Rogan. They did it through, I forget what the name of their page was, but they basically have pages, which is purely educational content. And it just indoctrinated them in. And then through the beauty of retargeting and through capturing audiences, you can then start to sort of slowly take them down that pathway we call it the customer acquisition path. Some people call it the customer journey, ultimately to a sale. And that's the way that humans normally buy stuff. 
and I know Tom, you have the Floby example. I have the remarkable two example of people who've listened to the podcast. You know, it's like they took me on this great journey, and I was fascinated by how it all worked to ultimately buy a six hundred dollar thing that I now use like all the time, and here it is, like right here. You know, I'm using it every single day. The point was is I didn't know who the hell they were three months ago, and now it's an indispensable part of my life. If you can do that, and I think Remarkable 2 does it really well, and I think a lot of brands like AG1, I think, does it well, all of a sudden, this becomes a different paradigm shift, and you're not necessarily... The CPA, the goal at the end, like it's got to make financial sense. It's got to return from an ad spend perspective. But as soon as you go tippy top of the funnel, top, 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 brand awareness, reach, a lot of these campaigns that have nothing to do with conversion, video views, we even do it sort of in a mid funnel at a consideration kind of campaign with link clicks or traffic now is what it's called. You have to measure all of that. And I think cost per content is the new paradigm from my perspective, it now measures your efficiency in being able to produce the right types of content. And ultimately, how does that lead to your customer acquisition cost? It now flips the paradigm from pure website conversion campaigns, which, as we know, for pretty much any industry, the CPMs in those campaigns are going to be $30, $40, $50. But as soon as you go into the brand awareness and the reach campaigns, or video view campaigns, which is like really what we're talking about here, top of funnel content that's not salesy, it's helpful and useful, you're looking at CPMs that are like three, four, five dollars. So if you blend it all together to ultimately get to your ultimate goal, which is to hit your KPIs and your metrics, using cost per content as an indicator on the front end is a very smart way of looking at your business. And I think this is a new concept for a lot of people. We're hashing this out internally inside tier 11. But if you can start to think differently about this, I think I actually counted this up in a video. I think it was 37 or 38 touch points for Remarkable 2 before I actually bought the damn thing. That's a lot. And if you understand that that's how your journey actually has to occur, then I think you're a better marketer as a result of it. Yeah, and it probably wasn't the same ad. You probably just didn't see the same Remarkable 2 ad 37 times before you bought. It was content that hit. It was some content that was completely irrelevant to me too, which is always sort of funny because it was like for engineers doing, I don't know, debugging diagrams. And the only reason I knew about that is because my son is an engineer. So I was like, all right, well, that's cool. Oh, you can draw on the thing? Oh, that's cool. It hit me in so many different ways, sort of to your point, Landon. It's like they put out such a wide swath of content. And I don't think it was like, oh, let's do avatar number one, which is engineering guy. Let's do avatar number two, which is CEO guy. Let's do avatar. I don't think they actually really even did that. So the whole idea of like the avatar doesn't really matter. Know what your audience is looking for. Understand what their potential pain points are. Understand what the objections to the sale are, more sort of deeper in the funnel. But like at a very base level, understanding who your target market is and what their pain points are, their desires are. For me, it was a stack of yellow legal pads that I write on all my calls. And then they're sitting in a pile over there and I have no idea. I was looking for something today. I was like, when did I last talk to this guy? Shit, I wish I had those notes somewhere. And it was a video that talked about that. I'm like, that's me. And I don't know which of the 37 touch points it was. The point was, is, and it didn't really pitch 
the product, it was probably sort of mid funnel. They had retargeted me at that point in time. But my point is, is like, this is the type of stuff that you have to start thinking about as a marketer. It's not all about CPA. And I think that the cost per content produced and the cost per content actually posted is probably even more important and measuring that metric and then adjusting as time goes on. This is a more mature way of marketing. If you have no money in the bank and you're a startup, like go website conversion campaigns. Just start off, see if you can actually sell shit to the world. That's a good way to start. But if you're struggling to scale, this is absolutely where you need to be going right now. And it's not just hiring an agency and saying, hey, run more website conversion campaigns. That's great. We can probably make some improvements, but they're tiny improvements. This is where it all of a sudden you're using content top of funnel for brand that ultimately pulls people into that customer journey, that customer acquisition path. And I think cost per content is the new metric for sure. So Landon, is cost per content is pretty analogous to this general theme within ads in general of like more creative, more creative. But this kind of is like a, sitting on top of that, even like using social as your initial metric and then maybe bringing that into some campaigns. How do you start to talk to people that you're working with and getting them to produce more content? I think that there's a few different ways that you can approach it. I think depending on the size of the business, I think depending on the awareness of the client, if you're working with a client, their awareness on the importance of this can kind of dictate where you approach the conversation. But like Ralph said, they need to have a good product that is proven to sell in order for this to work because if you're going to spend more money and things that aren't going to get conversions isn't going to, to be helpful if they don't have a product that's already been proven. But you can start it even on the very simple end of rethinking the way you retarget people. So let's say, for example, Ralph. Ralph may have saw a remarkable conversion ad, but then he saw 36 other ads that weren't specifically trying to sell him that. So you can start very simply where you don't have to just put all of this money up front going out to a cold audience with content, you could start with that as kind of like a complimentary thing where maybe you're trying to generate leads, people see your ads, they see videos that are trying to get a conversion. But then on the back of that, now you're retargeting those people that didn't take an action because maybe you hit them with the, the wrong pain point. That wasn't what they were experiencing. They weren't ready to make a purchasing decision, but you're staying in front of those people, coming at them with different angles, overcoming their beliefs, their objections, all of these things that come to the psychology side of marketing, and also staying in front of people. It's like the red car effect. You want to stay top of mind, so when that person is ready to make that decision, they purchase from you. So I think that's the easiest way to transition, because on the retargeting side, you might be spending $5 a day, or you could spend $10 a day to 10 pieces of content, $1 each. And you can come at 10 different angles and you can see what's working and you can iterate on that. I think that's the easiest way to start before you start trying to invest more money into it, where now you're running ads to blog posts, to cold audiences, to lead magnets, to cold audiences, videos to cold audiences. I think that is an amplified strategy. But we can scale that down and we could do it on the back end where 80 to 90% of our budget might be to conversion ads. And then we're using 10, 20% of that budget is retargeting. But the retargeting isn't just like another ad saying, buy my stuff with a different picture. That retargeting stuff is positioned to be more on the branding side. But another thing that we also do is like consistently review clients' social media profiles. What are they already producing that we can leverage without having to go to them and say, hey, we need you to start creating more content? 
putting out four posts a week. Over the last month, they've got three that actually started to over-index, got a lot of views. Now we might take those, we might turn them into ads, or we might just glean insights off of those. So like, there's a lot of different ways that we can approach it. The content end is an entire conversation in and amongst itself in terms of how much we should be producing, how much we should be investing in it. But you can literally just follow organic content to give you all of the signals of where you should be investing your money. I've done this personally where I was just putting out posts three times a day on TikTok. One got 200,000 views. I created a lead magnet based on that same topic. Posts offering the lead magnet over-indexed, I turned those into ads and I was getting leads for like 70 cents. The only reason I was able to get leads for so cheap is because I was leveraging what the algorithm was already telling me people want this content. And it all started from content that had nothing to do with trying to sell somebody something. Yeah, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. Like we're not talking about, oh, now I need a branding budget. Well, you can start kind of simply and then just look at your analytics. There is a content tab inside Meta that I think is very underused. It's like if you're posting stuff on your page. Now, granted, everything that you post on your page is going to get very limited reach. You're going to your fans. I get it. But at least it gives you like an early indication, a sign of life that the patient actually has a heartbeat sort of thing. The ones that get nothing, probably not ones that you need to. And ones that get engagement, and this is the thing that that always sort of confuses clients. It's like, well, you know, we post a lot. We get lots and lots of engagement. I'm like, on which ones? Well, you know, we do funny gifts or like it's a throwback Thursday or whatever the uh, Tuesday. And I never even know. I'm not really on social media all that much. Or like some funny expression. That's great. But like, let's talk about content that actually relates to your product. You have to think with the end in mind. Ultimately, you want to get them to buy something. A funny gif on Throwback Tuesday is not necessarily the first step. It might be they get involved in your page. I'm not discounting that content, but it's like the stuff that you created for that example that you just mentioned, Landon, is exactly what we're talking about here. And then you just simply boost it almost like the Dennis Yu dollar a day strategy, like just start boosting this stuff and then read the signals and say, oh, people are resonating with this. And I had no idea. The funny thing is, I know Tom and I talk about this all the time. It's not necessarily about it being perfect. It's just about velocity and getting the thing out there taking your super smart marketing mind and setting that aside, like we're testing a tool right now. I know you did this Instagram test, which is fascinating. Like the AI tool produced the content and it's out producing like the human-based content. And neither one of us when we looked at it, we're like, oh my God, this is never really going to work. It's like setting aside your biases of what you think is going to be great. Just get the stuff out there. As long as it doesn't denigrate your brand or if you're an agency and you're working for a company, you got to be careful about those sorts of things. Of course, then again, there's a whole other side to that, that they don't really know what they don't know. And they should be taking your advice and posting what you tell them to post. The point is, is like you can do this without spending money. At least it gives you an indication of, oh, maybe I should do that top of funnel. Oh, maybe I should do that just to create brand awareness. Oh, maybe I should do that. So I then create a lead magnet around that because it's resonating. So you're using the content to create the audience, to create the hook that ultimately leads to the conversion. And that's complete reverse thinking, I think, with most marketers. They do it in the reverse, and they just do website conversions, like Landon says, for the 1% to 3%. 3% if you're lucky, that are in market at that zero moment of truth, at that particular point in time to buy. You want to get those people. 
Don't get me wrong, but you're leaving 97% of your market still out there that doesn't give a crap about what you're doing. And you spent money to get in front of them. What are you going to do after that? And if that 1% to 3% number never changes, what's the only way to affect that equation? To grow the big, the audience to increase. Exactly. It's literally yeah, just right. math. You kind of said something, Ralph, that people might only be engaging with their current audience on their socials. But now with TikTok, YouTube, and Reels, those are discovery platforms. People go there to discover new things. And that's a great place to test. I mean, we even see on our own stuff, the wide variance that we get between different types of Reels. That's a great way to glean insights on either turning that into an ad or turning that into another piece of content or building upon the ideas that you had within there. And one of the things that I don't think enough brands do is that's actually talk to their customers to find out why they bought the product, how the product has changed their lives, what they wish they would change about the product, comparing that product to a competitor. There's so much to be gleaned from actually talking to your customers and maybe a survey works, but really getting on a call where you can really dive into the details and just keep asking why, like you're a five-year-old. Well, why this? Why that? Don't be afraid to test stuff. And as Kazan pointed out in that PT episode, if people don't like it, they're not going to see it because the algorithm is not going to show it. No harm, no foul. Exactly, exactly. We're taking guesses. You're running four conversion ads because you decided that those were the best hooks and angles or the client said that this is why people purchase our product and this is what our research showed. When you start to think about branding and content, you start to allow the consumers, the market, the audience vote as to what they actually want to see because they're showing with their engagement and then the algorithm is going oh yeah people are engaging this they push it you can put out something different every single day and you could have something that hits that you never knew that people were interested in that that wanted to buy your product for that reason you can get so many insights just by producing content all right we have a question from jflow and i don't know if meta covered this advantage plus thing at all in your chat ralph but do you guys have any experience using meta's advantage plus shopping campaigns is this a campaign type that mixes both awareness and conversions together Yeah, there was a quite a bit of talk about Advantage Plus. And right now it's Advantage Plus shopping. But one of the other things is that Advantage Plus is sort of Meta's answer to Performance Max. Right now it's really it's on the shopping side of the equation. There's 30 other Advantage Pluses that are coming, which basically means that you put your face back into the algorithm in order to get your conversion and sort of bring them through your customer journey. I would say, without a doubt, every single case study that they used, and this was the case studies that they used were largely e-com brands. I will say that. So there is that side of it too. So we do a lot of digital brands. We do a lot of like lead gen ads and a lot of other sorts of things, which I think this strategy applies. They want to use the biggest, best, baddest brands and to sell it to the thousands of people that listen to these things. So having said that, Advantage Plus shopping was a big component to it. And I went to a day two session where we actually went through with actual media buyers, guys that have media buying experience, deal with large brands, spending a million to $2 million a day. These are big, big accounts. And every single one of them is using Advantage Plus Shopping in the e-com space. But what they did is they started as like the business as usual campaigns, figure out what creative works, figure out what audiences work to start and then take the best ones and then put those into, and with a conversion lift study in most cases. So you're actually testing sort of side by side 
a business as usual campaign with Advantage Plus shopping campaigns. And I've got all kinds of analytics and results from that conference. And every single one is there was not only conversion lift, but there was lowered CPAs, increased return on ad spend. As long as you're not just going into it cold, and that's where you have an element of control with non-Advantage Plus campaigns. And then you take what you learn. Once again, what Landon's saying, look at the damn data, figure out what's working, create another campaign that allows you to insert all the different aspects of the best parts of your business as usual campaigns. And then running them side by side, they don't overlap, which is really, I don't exactly understand exactly how all that works. I don't think anyone at Meta really does, but that's where you start to get even more scale. Branding is a part of that, but it's a little bit more on the conversion side. So that's how it was explained to us from a lot of these big case studies. It's yes, that's a component to it. Athletic Greens was doing it. At the Allergan companies were doing it. Tapestry, you know, Kate Spade, they all had these and they all had sort of sections of it. It's like, all right, think are high level, but then also start to use some of our algorithmically powered tools that allow the media buyers to basically just sort of put it in and just let it go for a bit. So it was a component of everything here. I'd be interested to see what Landon says about it, you know, for actual real world experience running these things as well. Yeah. So the Advantage Plus shopping is they're still conversion focused. So you're still putting, but you can put in, I believe it's something like up to 100 ads. I can't remember the exact limit into one campaign. The way that it was sold to us from our reps were it allows the algorithm to determine which ad to show to which person at which point in time, as opposed to you trying to do retargeting and sequence things yourself. So I love the concept of it because it's like, okay, well, if it knows, it knows more than we do about our market. So I really like the concept of it, but still, like most of them are likely going to have a conversion focus. It's not mixing brand awareness campaigns with consideration campaigns and video view campaigns and conversion campaigns. So just on the technical side of it, we've seen mixed results with it on the implementation side of it. So we've seen where performance has definitely showed improvements, but a large portion of that was coming from view through conversions. And on the account we were testing it on, they have a very large portion of their ad spend going on Google. So it was one of those things that we would need to run a conversion lift to try and determine the true impact it was having because we were in a position of trying to discern if that lift was coming from it because in our third-party attribution tools, the messages were a little bit mixed. So it's something that we've seen some mixed results with in terms of usage on the ground, but definitely something that I think is only going to get adopted more and more and more because the algorithm knows more than we do. I'm sorry, but <laughs> we can think we're the all-powerful button clicker behind the screen, but Facebook is probably going to be able to do things a little bit smarter than us. We need to come into it from a marketing standpoint and a messaging standpoint because that's where we're going to be able to make really great decisions. Uh, and this is something I think we talked about yesterday, Tom, on our call is allowing the algorithm to do its job. And I think we as media buyers have been skeptical to allow that to happen. That can't happen anymore. We're at the stage now where we actually do need the algorithm to do its job. Case in point, we have a personal injury law client speaking with the media buyer. There is a component to their account that is overseen by a different platform, a Google pay-per-click specialist who's probably one of the 
best ones I've ever met, but he's old school. And that old school is trying to manipulate everything and not trusting Google in order to allow the algorithm to really work and find their ideal customer. In this particular case, it's car accident victims. And we're not talking about anything here that's brand related, really. It's all conversion campaigns. But what he was able to do is stave off all of those criticisms and go and leverage the algorithm by not doing a whole lot setting it up in the right way and letting Google figure it out. One, two, three, four months went by, turning the heat up. I'm getting text messages from the guy like, what the hell's going on here? You guys don't know what you're doing. You know, tier 11 sucks. Boom. Last week, six signed cases. And the reason why is he held off and said, no, I know what I know. I'm going to let the algorithm do the work. And the algorithm is gathering this data. And there's a certain level of trust that we have to instill on these platforms. And I think then it becomes a client management question more so than anything. And that's where it's challenging when you're a performance agency. It's like you have to have that. I think it's a good example of allowing the algorithm to work and keeping your hands off it. I think these Advantage Plus campaigns, campaigns just in general, we as media buyers are too touchy. We touch too much. And we have a case in which we were touching a lot on a campaign for a customer that we're sort of on our last legs with, trial with. And we didn't touch anything for the entire month of June. They had their best month ever, up 25%, by the way. And Advantage Plus plus campaigns that have been set up in May and late April. And we're just letting the algorithm do the job to finally find it takes time and it takes patience and it takes client management and expectations and some psychological chutzpah to be able to not touch something as opposed to touching it. And I think that's what Advantage Plus really, they were at the Meta Conference, reiterated that fact as well. Don't trust us completely. The inputs have to be smart. Do your business as usual first and then do the Advantage Plus. But this is the way all the algorithms are going right now. We're seeing it with performance packs and we're going to see it even more so with more Advantage campaigns inside Meta. We should create a fake competitor agency and their branding slogan can be, we touch too much. Brilliant. I think this is a really hard thing that humans have in that we like to control things. And with these different algorithms, Nobody knows how they work, like not even the engineers who built them. Basically, it comes down to you build a neural network that's trained, and then our job is to give it all the inputs and then to let it know when the output achieves what we want it to achieve. And letting the middle control itself and just control those two aspects is what's going to be the future for advertising. We have a question here from Courtney on our team that we'd like to hit on. Can you guys discuss if how a conversion lift study could fit into all of this? Yeah, I mean, I have some thoughts on it, uh, Landon. I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> I think that the more measurement you can do, the better. I think a big part of it is delayed gratification when it comes to this type of marketing. We're in a world of instant gratification and control. So we want to hold control over all the buttons that are getting pressed and we want to get results instantly. So as we start to think of delayed gratification, I think that the more report and backing we can have to the lift in performance, I think is going to be better. 
especially when we think of a conversion lift and it's going out with the, you know, the questions to the audience and we're seeing this, this broader scope study that Google or that, that Meta is performing to see the lift that those ads are having. It's not just looking at, hey, this had seven conversions versus five conversions. I think we need to broaden our scope of how we're assessing things. And I do personally feel that these brand and conversion lift studies do start to broaden the scope of how we're viewing the benefits of what Meta is performing to our marketing. So I do definitely think that they are beneficial, especially the fact that they run over a longer time span as well. They're not just like a two-week study that you run. I think also provides a commitment that you're running this strategy for a longer period of time. So I think all of these things together really do bring a large benefit to it. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend it just tagging on to that. I think it's a great way of measuring this strategy And one of the other questions that I see in the channel here is, how do you manage this with clients who are like, I want results now. They all want results now. This is a client management issue. So one of the areas in which I think we're dealing with this is that we are quadrupling or tripling our customer success operators or our customer success managers in order to deal with this so that they're highly adept at managing clients and client expectations. And you are going to have some conflicts with this with certain customers that just aren't going to buy into it. And I'm not saying this is going to be for everyone because this is a tough pill to swallow because it's like, oh my God, you guys are spending $100 a day on these content campaigns, which I'm, I'm going into the ad manager right now. I don't see any conversions from those campaigns. What the hell are you doing? You guys don't know what you're doing. Well, first off, there's third-party tracking tools that are going to be able to enable to help that, which is exclusive to tier 11 that no one else on the planet will ever have. But that's a whole other thing, which we'll talk about in future episodes. The second part of that is that a conversion lift study will show how I would manage to say, listen, Mr. Customer, you hired us for a specific reason. And there is a strategy that we're seeing very, very effectively being managed in other tier 11 accounts because we have that access as well as through our partner at Meta, which we have very high level conversations with them. And this is a strategy that might be a departure from the old website conversion campaigns, but we need to test this together. And I need your buy-in and here's the reasons why. Maybe show them this show. There's some stats that we can certainly share with you all on it. But it becomes a client management question. And a conversion lift study is a very easy way of doing that. And you don't have to spend your entire budget doing it. But I would say a portion of it and at least sort of see like in the data. The worst thing that can happen here too is that you do it and then it doesn't work which maybe it's because you have the wrong content up front. You have to have that brand awareness content that actually does sort of open up the audiences so that those people are now aware of your brand. Maybe you're ready to consider, maybe not ready to buy at that point in time, but a conversion lift study will at least give you some signals that are pointing you in the right direction. And I think it's one of the best tools that's out there in order to do that. And every single one of these case studies, every single one at Meta, and granted these are with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of budget. So they have more budget than, you know, your customers maybe spending 300 or $1,000 a day. Every single one of them did it. And it changed the course of the trajectory of their business. And that's the big thing. Sometimes you have to take your foot off first to steal second. And you're not going to steal every base, even though now with the new rules in Major League Baseball, it's like 70% steal success rate now, Tom, which I wish we would have in all our ads. But the point is, is like you have to sell it. 
You have to sell it hard. If you don't do this, you're missing out. Otherwise, you're competing in these red ocean markets with website conversions that are just a race to the bottom because CPMs are just going to continue to increase and increase and it's going to be harder and harder for you to scale. Yeah, I think a good way to think of that is really in relation to this topic and to this show where by the time the media buyer or the customer success owner is talking to the client about this topic, that's the conversion. What we're doing now is the awareness and there'll be more content coming out. That's more in the consideration phase. It's just all trying to build this long branding play of these are the things that we know to be true and this is what we're going to do. So by the time it's time to convert you with the CSO or the media buyer, you're well aware of all this. All right. So we've hit on like the top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel with conversions. And I think we don't talk, nobody talks about this enough of how branding affects after somebody converts. And I think the remarkable two example is really good. I imagine the cost to acquire Ralph as a customer is probably pretty high, but they halved that cost because Ralph showed it to somebody at our latest leadership meeting and they bought while sitting there without having seen any ads. That was Ange. Let's talk a little bit about how important branding is and how to control it after somebody buys. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So when you're talking about conversion, we're talking this person has made a purchase. Yeah. So we were sitting there, Ralph comes out like, hey, look, look at this cool thing I bought after seeing all these ads. The ads are super great, hit all my pain points. And then Angela's like, that's exactly what I need. And she dropped whatever it was like five or 600 bucks right then and there to buy it. <laughs> she because she, she had a brand advocate in Ralph. She saw a demonstration of the product and knew how it would fit her life. And because Ralph knew Ange, he could talk her through the different aspects of how it would affect her day to day. Yeah, there's companies like HubSpot with their flywheel. I think it's attracts engaged delight. And then you got Digital Marketer with their customer journey map, if I'm saying that correctly. But where they map out everything from not only pulling somebody into your sphere of awareness to the purchase and beyond. And I think it's so important that businesses realize that making the sale is 50% of the way there just making up an arbitrary number, but there's so much that still needs to happen. The delivery of your product or service, that experience, how you follow up with people after the fact, because you don't just want a customer, you want a customer for life. You want them to have a positive experience. You want Ralph to go and share this with other people. So everything after the purchase is so incredibly important. And I think that this is very multifaceted in the approach to doing this, because this could be, you think of a company like Athletic Greens, they didn't become a billion dollar company because they were great at just selling. They had people that are coming back over and over and over again and telling people about their brand in order to get to be worth a billion dollars. So things like branding ads, are still extremely important to existing customers because it keeps you top of mind. It starts to build authority in the eyes of people that are already existing customers, seeing testimonials and other things like that. So even on the advertising side, the branding is still very important to people that are already customers. Seeing you being active on social media keeps you top of mind. But then also things like campaigns, loyalty campaigns for existing customers, email marketing that's going out on an ongoing basis to somebody that's already made a purchase based on their unique characteristics and segmentation. So I think that full funnel up until the purchase is fantastic. But to build a very large and successful company like Athletic Greens, 
you have to be thinking of what is happening after somebody has made that purchase. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is creating brand advocates. And I think the only way we always come back is we're all like DR people at heart. Like, how do you measure that? The only way you can really measure that is overall, like how the business is doing. And that's marketing efficiency ratio. I hate to say it. It's like Athletic Greens is a great example of it. And it's like, all right, they do paid sponsorships for Joe Rogan, but he's legitimately doing the ads saying that he loves this thing. Like if he didn't love it, he wouldn't like, you can tell that I do ads on perpetual traffic. If we use the product, I'm going to tell people, it's like, this thing is great. You guys need to do it. Like it's an ad, but it's also a higher level of brand advocacy. I'm now a fan of this product. So how can Remarkable 2 measure the fact that we've now done three episodes on perpetual traffic, which gets listened to 200,000 times per month? And then how can they measure Angela sitting on the couch buying it? And then she bought the folio, which is a nice little hack from Remarkable 2, by the way. You can get folios for like a third of the price on Amazon. That's one of their upsell flows because we were all thinking like, wait a second, I got sold this thing, but what do I buy next? They didn't really have an upsell pathway. Like they've got a service, I think, where you can back up your data, but it's like they also give you the option of, I can back it up on Google Drive or Dropbox. It's amazing. I don't think they're putting all their eggs in the basket of get a customer and the customer continues to buy from me. That's not their model. But what they have done is they've created a lot of brand advocates as a result of that. And I think that's something that's really hard to measure. I was talking to my co-host of Perpetual Traffic because I was like, I got to buy one of these. And then he like he searched on Amazon, of course, human nature, first thing you do, they don't have it. They're not on Amazon, which is interesting. But there was all these other ones. She's like, yeah, did you try this one, like the Amazon notepad and this one? And I was like, I didn't even consider it. Didn't even consider it. Probably could have saved myself a couple hundred bucks on it because they got me with brand loyalty through the 37 touch points. And now I'm an advocate for it. I'm using it like I wouldn't even consider any other brand. And that's brand loyalty. Now I've become an advocate. And here we are talking about it on this show. How do you measure that? That's like nirvana for a marketer, isn't it? And it feeds back into the top of funnel. You now take the segment of Joe Rogan talking about Athletic Greens, and that can now become a top of funnel ad for your business that leverages all of the brand authority and brand equity that Joe Rogan has built and is associating with your brand. And now you're taking branding and amplifying it with performance marketing. So this is where we can call it full funnel, whatever we, however we want to do it. But it's like that purchase is just one step along the entire journey. It's a wheel that continues to move around and around. We presented this to a client this week because they're at that stage where they are ready for this. And that's exactly what you're talking about. It's a continuous sort of flywheel. So I want to talk about this presentation, Ralph, and like set the stage a little bit, how we presented this overall idea of awareness, consideration, really expanding outside of conversion. They're in a space that's pretty competitive and almost commoditized a little bit and they were really looking to get out of that rat race and to talk a little bit about how we put together what we put together and what we presented and how it was received yeah well let me share my screen here if we can do that i'll show the flywheel in just a second but basically this is a study that was done by les Bennett and peter field and what they actually showed is that sales activation which is conversion campaigns have an immediate effect 
They have higher ROI. This is like you running all your conversion campaigns. But notice that there's not a whole lot of scale here. So you get a certain amount of sales, you get a certain amount of scale in your business. And that's where this business right now is in this particular example. They sort of reached a point where we were optimizing their Google ads, we were optimizing their Facebook ads on the conversion side. You know, we need some sort of interfunnel sort of tracking stuff to be finally set up so that we really understand like whoever is coming in the front end ends up turning out to be a procedure on the back end and they're in the med spa space. So the point was is that they've got a good business, but they're perfectly right now at that inflection point where they start to need to add in that brand component. And the brand component is a longer term play. However, what it does is it does this. So you get out of sort of that short term dogfight in the website conversion, high intent based keyword terms, and you still get that sort of sales activation. But as you start to build your brand, you start to gain these sort of long term gains in sales as well as potentially reduce price sensitivity, which is sort of an important part to this. What they found in this study through Bennett and Field, and it's a great one. If you're a marketer, this is a little bit scholarly, but they also did this on 700 campaigns, 70 industries, billions in spend. So this is not something that's like, oh, we have this idea and then we're going to create a scholarly paper and presented at some conference at Harvard. No, this actually did work. And what they found is that at about the six month point in this case, and these are some larger brands, the brand building starts to outperform the sales activation campaigns because you start to actually build that moat that Landon discussed. That's where that point of inflection is between three to six months, all of a sudden you start seeing the brand campaigns, then powering the search campaigns for the branded keywords or for the product name itself, you start to create sort of this mode around your business through all of this brand building content that differentiates you from the rest of the crowd. For this customer, it's a bloodbath in their space. They have six or seven like highly aggressive competitors, but they have a unique selling proposition of just a couple of things that they do that nobody knows about. And all they're really doing is they're going along that sales activation cycle and just competing against them for price. They're not really building a brand, which then ultimately creates repeat procedures. So there is an element of lifetime value. There's an average order value component to this. But once you actually create that brand advocate, they get a good result. They're going to come back for more procedures and they're going to tell their friends. And there's all the things that we talked about in the Athletic Greens example. But the point is, is this is sort of the chart that you have to think about. And like Landon said, and I think that we talked about, this is not something that's going to immediately bear fruit. And this is where client management, if you're an agency, you have to really be strategic about this. But you also have to do it in such a way that this is your long-term play here. Most of that brand building content is not conversion-based content. It is not call to action at the end. It is calling out particular pain points. Might be like before and afters in this particular case. It might be user stories. It might be founder story. It might be what makes us different. I'm talking to a fashion client in about an hour or so. And like they already have all this top of funnel brand content. They're doing nothing with it. 
and they're struggling to scale. And this is the strategy that I'm going to talk to them about. But it does take some time. And the point is, is this is a strategy that works. You have to figure out through just pure volume what that brand building content will be. Look at your data and then understand what's engaging, what's resonating with your audience and continue to iterate on that and create more and more and more content over time. So from a paid media agency, this is a little bit hard to accept, I think, at times just because like we want to go for the conversion. But the longer play is the combination of the two. This study just empirically shows that's how brands do it. And then you combine that with some of the case studies that I saw at Meta a few weeks back. This is the direction we're going now. There's no question. You're really dropping great anti-slogans. First, it was the, we touched too much. And now a med spa is a bloodbath. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's a really important, like, important for this client, but an important step for us as a performance marketing agency to present this, to think this way, to start implementing this across our clients. It is really for the long-term success and sustainability of their businesses. And it's similar to what we're doing with our own business and how we're putting so much effort into branding and like really setting our, creating our own moat in this space. Did you guys have anything else that you wanted to hit on with full funnel marketing or these different levels of campaigns? No, I think that pretty much covers it. And I got example after example of just instances where this is just proven to work. So it's just a matter of just getting started. Yeah, no, I agree. I second that. Well, now I got to go see if uh, we can get Remarkable to advertise on PT. <laughs> <laughs> God, they've, they've gotten a few users, I think, from everything we've talked about. So it's good. They should. They did a good job. Well, fellas, thank you very much. It was a great chat. Great connecting with you guys. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share and hit the little bell button to be notified whenever we have something new drop. And if you are looking to expand your brand beyond just straight conversion campaigns and to really grow your business sustainably, head over to tier11.com and hit the big pink button. And if you do it soon, you can talk to Ralph and he can see if you're a good fit for tier 11. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Customer Acquisition Show. Take the next step toward growing your customer base. Visit tier11.com and request your customized growth plan. And remember to hit the follow button so you can be notified of future episodes.